Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Samantha Salt is a child psychiatrist in Southeast Florida. We thought it necessary to discuss how one goes about diagnosing and treating a child because there are so many variables that need to be considered. She graciously agreed to address these issues with us. Dr. Saltz, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Dr. Strauss, for having me and for discussing this important topic. Our pleasure. Okay, many questions, but let's start with one that I think people have a little bit of a confusing position on. For example, is it true that diagnosable psychiatric conditions exist even in children, young children? Perhaps many of us do not want to accept this as a reality that children are so affected. What's what's your thoughts? It's unfortunate, but yes, psychiatric conditions absolutely can exist in young, young children. And it's important that these conditions are identified as early as possible so children can get treatment. Depending on the psychiatric condition depends on how we go about treating the child. According to the CDC, about 9.4% of children between the ages of 2 and 17 have actually received a diagnosis of ADHD. And 7.4% of children between 3 and 17 have a diagnosed behavioral problem. There are many psychiatric conditions that can affect children and adolescents, and it's important that psychiatrists and developmental pediatricians and the school all come together to identify these conditions and treat them accordingly. Just because a child has ADHD doesn't necessarily mean that a child doesn't have behavioral problem or doesn't have anxiety or doesn't have depression, but we can definitely say that some children have one condition and other children actually suffer from more than one, and it's imperative that we identify these different conditions and treat them appropriately. How do you go about making a differential diagnosis? What is involved other than perhaps the school or a parent saying that my kid seems troubled or not? But I think what I'm really trying to say is you have such a hard thing to do because a lot of these kids, God bless them, but they're little kids. They can't verbalize what they're thinking and what they're feeling. How do you approach this? It's interesting because you're right. Some children aren't able to vocalize their feelings and their emotions unlike an adult can. And therefore, we really have to look at the behavior of the child both in school and out of school, at home and extracurricular activities and sports to really identify is there a change in behavior from previous behaviors. So if a child starts acting out, if a child becomes irritable, if a child's grades start to go down, if a child struggles with difficulty sleeping, if a child starts developing somatic symptoms, complaining of headaches, tummy aches, things like that frequently. Children oftentimes don't say, I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling depressed. Instead, they may be irritable, they may be aggressive, they may be argumentative, they may be less motivated to do things that they used to want to do. So a child who may have enjoyed basketball all of a sudden may not want to play basketball anymore, or a child who wanted to dance may not want to dance anymore. So we have to really look at previous behaviors and assess whether the child is declining from the way that they were beforehand. Other children actually have regressive behaviors. So they may meet developmental milestones and all of a sudden not be able to meet those milestones anymore. The classic case oftentimes is a child who was potty trained and all of a sudden starts wetting the bed again. Um, This can mean that the child all of a sudden has some kind of anxiety disorder or depressive disorder and looking at symptoms and really trying to identify what changed gives us clues into what is going on with the child. How young can you go? So it depends. So the truth of the matter is is that some identify 
identify relatively young because the child wouldn't have met developmental milestones. So if you look at a child who has risk for autism, for example, may have difficulty with social reciprocity, may have difficulty smiling, making eye contact, may have difficulty talking, and may not meet developmental milestones compared to other children their age. Sometimes even as little as three or even younger, we start seeing red flags for children who have developmental disorders or behavioral problems, particularly with autism. And in those kinds of situations, the pediatrician or the school or the daycare identifies the child at risk, suggests that they receive further attention from either a pediatric developmental pediatrician or from a child psychiatrist. Sometimes neurologists are involved to make sure that there's not something else going wrong. Sometimes it's just that the child's a little bit delayed and there's absolutely nothing wrong. Other times, there could be an issue. So we really need to make sure that there is a full workup and the child is being adequately assessed by a multidisciplinary team. Spend a moment, if you would, differentiating between Asperger's, which apparently we don't use that term anymore in autism. I think a lot of people are still confused as to why that happened and what the differences were, and we just need some insight to that. Absolutely. So Asperger's disorder, the real differential here is the DSM diagnostic criteria. So the DSM is manual that we use as psychiatrists and as doctors to kind of identify criteria to meet a diagnostic disorder. Those criteria are different between the DSM-4 and the DSM-5. And identifying what risk factors there were for DSM-4 versus DSM-5 for the different conditions really differentiated whether a child had an autism disorder versus an Asperger's disorder and how they are grouped together now. So DSM-4 separated Asperger's disorder from autism, and DSM-5 grouped them together as autism spectrum disorder. It's a more encompassing diagnosis. So whereas children within DSM-4 who had high-functioning autism may have not had difficulties with IQ and things like that would have been diagnosed with Asperger's disorder, now they would be classified under the DSM-5 as having an autism spectrum disorder. And central to many questions is when does it shift from a behavioral intervention, family intervention, and giving a kid a medicine? People, they shudder about the whole notion of giving medicines to kids. Maybe it's been done too liberally at times, so I need your thoughts on that. It really depends on what condition we're treating and how difficult it is for the child to function in society. So there are many conditions we can start with behavioral interventions, therapy, and, and the like. If a child's got a mild anxiety disorder or a mild depressive disorder, there are therapies the child can undergo and work on and see if that corrects the problem that's happening. Other times, medications really are needed. So if the child is failing in school, if the child is suicidal, if the child is cutting, exhibiting self-injurious behaviors, sometimes we do need to consider medications. Or if they've tried therapy for a period of time and the therapy hasn't been successful and they've received the appropriate kind of therapy for the kind of conditions the child is dealing with. We need to really look and assess whether the child has failed therapy, the severity of the condition, how the child is functioning both at home and at school, and the level of impairment to make a decision as to whether or not medications would be helpful for the child. Certain conditions like attention deficit disorder oftentimes are treated with stimulants because the effect size is so high and the children can benefit so much from a stimulant that 
oftentimes there is either a combination of behavioral interventions and medication or even sometimes just medication to treat the child. Ideally, the more modalities that we can use with both medication and therapy for certain conditions, the better the child will do. But there is no reason not to try therapy first if the child is not at a horrible level of functioning, if the child is, is doing really well. Their grades are still okay. They're still engaged at school. They are just having a mild anxiety or depressive disorder or something like that. And what about the whole notion of bipolar disorder? Bipolar disorder is, is challenging because bipolar disorder sometimes can be mixed with other child psychiatric disorders like attention deficit disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder, depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, but particularly with ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, and conduct disorder because some of the symptoms, the irritability that a child can have is also present in oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder or attention deficit disorder. The truth of the matter is, is that bipolar disorder in children is relatively rare. Most people with the disorder, with bipolar disorder, tend to develop it later in life, in, in their teens or in their early adult years. That doesn't mean that if a child has a strong genetic predisposition for bipolar disorder, there's environmental difficulties and there's a family history of bipolar disorder, that doesn't mean the child can't present with bipolar disorder at a young age. And that needs to be treated as quickly as possible so we can make sure the child is able to succeed even with the condition. Do children ever need to go into inpatient psychiatric hospitals? Does it ever get that bad? Absolutely, and that's where it gets difficult because we never want to hospitalize a child if we don't have to. But the truth of the matter is if a child is in acute danger to themselves or to other children or to other people or they're at risk for neglect, then we have to put them in a hospital to ensure their safety. And ultimately, a parent's job, first and foremost, is to protect their child. And a doctor's job, first and foremost, is to protect youth. So it's our job as psychiatrists, child psychiatrists, to make sure the child will be in a safe place, to make sure that they don't do damage to themselves or others. And in those situations where they may not be safe to themselves or others, then yes, inpatient hospitalization is sometimes needed. And that requires a collaborative approach from both the outpatient team and the inpatient team to ensure the child gets as effective treatment as possible. That must be very complex in terms of the mechanics because we have a definite shortage of adult psychiatric beds in this country. I would imagine the shortage is even more so. It's definitely challenging, and I've also faced difficulties myself when there's a child who is acutely decompensated or has had suicidal ideation or, or things like that where it's difficult to get a child a bed in a hospital. But that being said, if a child is in acute danger to, to themselves or to other people or at risk of neglect, then as a professional, we have a responsibility to ensure the child is put in a safe place. And even if there isn't a bed on a unit at a given time, the hospital will need to, if a child needs criteria, to keep the child there and make sure that they're safe and protected. You talked about suicide, and we know that there has been a lot of discussion about the suicide rate in adolescents. Now, you treat adolescents as well. Yes, absolutely. How big of a problem is suicide in adolescents? How much of it's biological? How much of it is reactive to social pressures that are just overwhelming for the kid, but not necessarily biological? Suicide in 2017 was the second leading cause of death among individuals between the ages of 10 and 34, and suicide is the second leading cause of death in children, adolescents, and young adults between the ages of 5 and 24. That's a scary statistic, and the suicide rate has risen amongst youth. Now, the truth of the matter is, is there are 
many reasons that a child will attempt or commit suicide. And risk factors for that need to be recognized in advance so we can identify these youth who are potentially vulnerable to suicidal ideation or even suicide attempts. A family history of suicide attempts, um, exposure to violence, any feelings of acute loss or rejection, being bullied at school, access to firearms, um, a history of aggressive or disruptive behaviors, feelings of hopelessness or helplessness, impulsivity, all of these are potential risk factors that a child may have for a suicide attempt suicidal ideation, or even a completed suicide. And it's imperative that the schools, community, pediatricians, physicians, therapists all work together to identify those children who are most at risk and make sure they get the mental health care that they need in order to flourish and, and get well. We don't talk enough about personality disorders, and that's not always treatable with medication. That's a whole different approach. How young do you see, can you see, can you detect with any degree of reliability the development of a personality disorder? There are cues and warning signs that an adolescent or somebody younger may be starting to develop a personality disorder. Those may be some emotional turmoil, a history of unstable relationships, a history of impulsivity, difficulties with self-image, self-destructive behaviors. All of these may be warning signs that an adolescent may start to be developing a personality disorder. We know that there are therapies that are indicated for personality disorders, including dialectical behavioral therapy for some cognitive behavioral therapy and mentalization-based therapy. And if the adolescent wants to get better and we can provide them with insight into getting better, starting the child or the adolescent in therapy to treat these conditions or potential personality disorders is critical so we can help avoid the development of a full personality disorder and start teaching the child effective coping skills to deal with the impulsivity, potentially the aggression, and potentially difficulties with maintaining stable, healthy relationships. One of the questions that frequently comes up is, will a childhood psychiatric condition continue into adulthood? Do we have any data about that? Sometimes. There are some psychiatric conditions that are diagnosed in children and adolescents that do continue into adulthood, and that's why early intervention is so possible. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, somewhere about 60%, 50%, something like that, oftentimes continues into adulthood. The symptom that the hyperactivity symptom often decreases, it's one of the first symptoms to decrease into adulthood. Intellectual disabilities, autism, they continue into adulthood very frequently, if not most of the time. Bipolar disorder and schizophrenia or chronic disorders. And childhood trauma, we can't underestimate the impact of childhood trauma on potentially the development of adult mental illness, addiction, depression, and things like that. Whereas a child may have experienced some kind of traumatic event during their youth, they may not have long-term sequelae initially, and a child may have undergone therapy, gotten better, and then later on in life start to regress and find themselves feeling depressed, having flashbacks, nightmares, things like that from an event that happened you know, during their adolescence or even during during their childhood. So we need to make sure that we treat the children adequately and sufficiently and really follow them to make sure that if they do have some kind of predisposition or diagnosed psychiatric condition, that they get the treatment they need and they don't lose the tools that we want them to develop in order to prevent them from regressing. I would always imagine that in 
child and adolescent psychiatry that you have to involve the family. And connected to that is the whole notion of the identified patient. The child may be called the patient, but is really not. It's the family dynamic. That must be a very difficult situation when you are confronted with it. Your ideas, your thoughts. A hundred percent. Treating a child means treating the family and treating the whole dynamic. And the truth of the matter is no parent, for the most part, wants to see their child not well. And vast majority of parents want their child to get better. So providing the parent with skills and tools to help the child navigate different situations, to teach the child how to deal with acute stress, to utilize breathing techniques and interventions can really benefit the child even more so potentially than one-on-one therapy with the child. Whereas a child may remember a portion of the therapy that I have with them one-on-one, it's critical that some of those skills I teach the child also are taught to parents. If I'm seeing a child for medication management and the therapist is involved with the actual therapy of the child, that the therapist also work with the parents in order to effectively treat the whole dynamic of the family. I so agree with you. Even with adults, if I can have another family member in the session with us, at least once or twice, it's a whole different insight. Get to look at their gestalt in a completely different manner. It's so helpful. I agree with you 100%. What's critical is educating the parents on how helpful they can be and really how they are probably one of the most important factors into getting their child well. Whereas a therapist may see a child once or twice a week for an hour at a time, a parent has the responsibility of teaching their children the techniques 24-7 and utilizing the techniques themselves. So that doesn't also underestimate the stress it is for a parent to have a child with needs that require special attention and for us to make sure we identify if the parent needs to have a therapist themselves or medication themselves in order to best cope and be there for their child. So true. We only have a few minutes left. The question has to do with medical marijuana. I get asked this question so frequently, and I know that there's a lot of controversy. In the world of adolescent psychiatry, is there a position, is there a sense of how to approach this exploding use of marijuana for almost everything? I would like your your observations about that. The truth of the matter is, is that I think many psychiatrists are interested in the possibility of using marijuana therapeutic interventions, and I think some psychiatrists are very reluctant to utilize marijuana for therapeutic interventions as well. The concern is, is particularly in child and adolescent psychiatry, is that the brain is developing. The child is still at a point in their life where they're undergoing puberty and new connections happening in the brain, so we need to make sure that nothing is really hopefully interfering with that to to a negative extent. Marijuana in and of itself, we know, can, for some patients, they swear that it helps with their anxiety. For some patients, they say that it calms them down. Some patients say it helps with PTSD, anecdotally. However, at the same time, there's some data. There was a JAMA article in 2019. There was a systematic review by Gobi, and it said that there are some people that when we have marijuana, there is some risk of it being linked to depression and suicidality with cannabis. So we need to make sure that this doesn't happen for our adolescents and they don't aren't smoking marijuana to the extent where they're having increased levels of depression and suicidality. And if it is related to marijuana, that we make sure that we prevent that from occurring. 
That being said, we also know that marijuana has been very effective for seizure disorders in some children. The research needs to be much broader, and we need to make sure that there's randomized controlled trials looking at the use of marijuana to treat different conditions and get more data. That's how I feel. And getting more data, I agree with you. If somebody has a child, I would strongly suggest that they do not decide to put the child on medical marijuana by themselves, but they talk to their child psychiatrist, pediatrician, or neurologist, whomever, because what you just said is it's the truth. That's where we stand right now in our um, understanding of, of how to use and how safe or not safe this molecule is in various situations. A hundred percent. And there's been some studies and some data that says that marijuana Marijuana has been linked to psychosis. We want to make sure that we don't potentially, when we're trying to help our children, we don't potentially put them in a precarious or potentially very dangerous situation. We need to speak with professionals. We need the full history to be disclosed to the professional to make sure that the child is receiving appropriate care and you're getting a helpful recommendation. And Samantha Saltz is a child psychiatrist in, in Southeast Florida. She's been very kind and talked to us and condensed into a relatively short amount of time a lot of data to give the child the best opportunity in life. Dr. Saltz, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me.